Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we are chatting with McKay Anderson, a creative director from Backfire Game Studio. Backfire is the publisher of Snack Time, a roll-and-write game where you play monsters snacking on pedestrians. I can't wait to hear about this. McKay, welcome to The Binge. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, gosh, what an interesting theme. We're going to get into that in a second. Um, I, I always love to be like the bad guy in stuff. I, and in this case, <laughs> when you get to be the monster, I think that is so, so cool. Um, but you've got quite the resume, I would say, in this uh, in this industry. And I, I want to kind of dive into that if that's, if that's cool with you. Um, mm-hmm. Starting off with, you've got a, gre- a degree in product design. How did that, like, what is that? Yeah. So um, depending on where you live, it's called different things. Industrial design is usually what they call it Um, here in the United States. I'm in Utah. Um, Most people think that I design factories when I say industrial design. So um, in places like Europe, they'll call it product design more often. And so I've kind of migrated to calling it that. Um, Basically, it's where art and uh, engineering kind of meet in the middle and have a baby. Um, You have I'm more concerned about the user, whereas engineers are more concerned about like the financials, the like how well it works, how well it does its job. And I'm like, no, we want it to be usable for the individual, a positive experience, and we want it to look good. And that's kind of what my uh, technical training is then. Oh, sweet. And now you use that to start at Hasbro. Yes. Um, it's a very diverse field. I mean, people go into designing jets for Boeing, uh, cars for Ford. Um, yeah. You can do doorknobs and bath bathroom faucets. Like there's just about anywhere you could go. I did an internship in medical supplies with Johnson & Johnson. I did um, a shoe design internship um, with a local company. And then I did an internship at Hasbro. And I was like, man, this is the most fun I've ever had at a job. And so that's kind of just where I aimed for. And that's where I landed right out of school. So were you designing like toys or games or what specifically were you doing there? Yeah, so I fell I fell right into the games team, um, and that wasn't that wasn't by mistake. I ran partway through high school, not high school, partway through college. I ran a Kickstarter. It was um, called Black Rabbit Dice. It was basically storytelling dice, uh, as I stutter, storytelling dice for kids with uh, speech impediments and yeah. speech like development developmental speech disorders. Um, And so basically it had a collection of games you could play with these storytelling dice to help kids make connections between different words and improve like their confidence in speaking. Um, I, I set out on that with the goal of I'm just going to see how Kickstarter works. So I set my goal at like $500. I was like, I can make these myself by hand because I had access to a laser engraver. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, I can do this. It ended up funding like I think thousand percent uh, got up toward like 18 grand or something. I was so in over my head. (laughs) Didn't even know what I was doing, but that was my first exposure to Kickstarter that I think sold me into the games team at Hasbro. So that at that point I was just on that path. Oh, sweet. And when you're in a company like that, um, like, are you able to still work on stuff on the side? Or I would think that they would kind of own even things that you're working on in your mind, right? Like, I know a lot of these kind yes. of NDAs and so forth say anything you develop, even if it's on your own time while you were here, if it's in the same industry, 
we own that IP. Yeah. Yeah. And that's very accurate. Yeah. It was, uh, you sign over complete creative possibilities. <laughs> and then you got to work with like, as soon as I saw in your bio, Lucas, like when you drop a name like Lucas Films, <laughs> that obviously gets people's attention, right? Yeah. What can you tell us? Like, what were you doing? Like Lucas Films, Disney, uh, you know, yeah. uh, Nickelodeon, Netflix. Like, what were you doing with these guys? So I, when I first got to Hasbro, I was on the entertainment and licensing team, which was basically. Um, any game that had an external I, IP with it. So any intellectual property that wasn't ours, that was the team I was on. Yeah, It worked really well to my advantage. I became really good with just working with people, especially learning how to treat their intellectual property as sacred and knowing that it wasn't just about us. Like this was kind of a give and take trying to create the right balance where it was still a Hasbro item if it was a branded Monopoly or something else versus like their game. Um, so yeah, I did three or four games for Lucas Films. One of them was uh, in anticipation for the when Solo was about to come out. Um, oh, it was cool. pretty fun. We developed the rules for Sabak, um, which was really no interesting. Way. Yeah. Oh my so gosh. I remember getting like the the design sheets that were all watermarked with my name, so that if it leaked anywhere, they would have my head. Um, <laughs> And so there was some really fun stuff going through and just play testing all the different versions of Sabak, like a watered down version for kids, like the full collector's item for um, for adults. I remember we did we did like a four hundred dollar version that was going to be exclusive to Lucas employees. I have no idea if it ever even got made, but I mean, we were talking like metal box, foam inserts, clay chips. It was it was designed to the nines. I don't even know if anything came of it, but I worked on that for months and some really fun experiences. That's a crazy amount of responsibility, um, like for something like Sabak, right? And uh, yeah. for those, that, I'm sure most people listening are probably Star Wars fans as well. I mean, I've got Star Wars stuff even on my shelf here behind me. Um, when you have a game that's referenced in, you know, in that world over decades, to right. finally actually create a workable version of that game. Um, did they kind of tell you guys, here's how it kind of works, or is it over to you guys, come up with the game and then and pitch it to us kind of thing? So they kind of gave us an initial download. We got on a call with them and they kind of gave us a download of like, okay, as far as canon goes, like yeah. this is what we have. As far as fan fiction goes, like this is what we have. And based on that, we basically took all that information. We came up with our rule set and they came up with their rule set. Okay. And we kind of met in the middle. I'll be honest, we took more of theirs because they I mean, <laughs> yeah, they're they're who they are. Yeah, story um, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can't really argue with that. Um, but then there were a couple gameplay changes that we tweaked just for functionality for mass market. There were some things that were just like, okay. I, those rules may fit with like canon and everything, but you can't expect a mass market individual. And they were really cool to work with. I have no complaints. There were some licensors that could be um, really messy to work with, but they they were a dream. They were really fun to work with. Oh, well, that's awesome. And then, so what led you to leave a, like a job like that, which most people would say is their dream job? That's a great question. And um, trying to be... Um, as complimentary of Hasbro and my time there 
some of the funnest times I've ever had. And I still do a lot of work for Hasbro. Mm. Um, I still do contract work uh, for a lot of different segments of their game team as a as a gameplay designer. Mm. Um, so I'm not going to say anything bad about Hasbro, but creatively, there were some differences that just couldn't be addressed. Um, and not only that, but uh, my family lives here in Utah. I was living in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. And um, it just got to the point we have four kids and kids were getting to the point where they knew that they weren't by their cousins or grandparents and family's always been really important to me and my wife. And so I would say biggest reason was we just knew that I, I was at a tipping point where I had to completely sell myself to Hasbro and just be all in for the rest of as long as they would keep me right. Mm. Or else I had to kind of create a different career that made sure we were closer to family that let me do more of the games that I was interested in. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I, I had a long bout of just designing mind numbing party games at Hasbro. <laughs> it's not, it, I'm, I'm not saying anything against them. Yeah. It's just not my cup of tea. And while I can design very simple games, I definitely prefer to get a little bit more meaty. Well, I think, and this is typical, I think of any industry, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I worked in the food industry, right. And I worked with one of the largest food manufacturers in Canada. And when you have companies that are that big, um, they, they move at the speed of a, of a cruise ship leaving the dock, right? Yeah. It, it is snail pace and everything has mm-hmm. to be vetted even risks have to be like, it, there's no just kind of, hey, let's throw this against the wall and see if it sticks kind of right. a thing. It's very much well-planned, well-researched before they really invest in anything. And it's no disservice to those large companies. I mean, those large right. companies are machines and they deliver a lot of great products to consumers around the world. But if your passion is around um, more nimble movement and uh you know and taking risks and you know saying hey we're just going to create a bunch of stuff and maybe nine of these things are going to fail but that's okay um you're probably better to, to go with a smaller company or, or go it on your own yeah. um and then so when you broke off back to your earlier comment then how yeah. did that how did that work because you had a contract right saying hey like this is non-compete you can't any right. of your so how do you effectively, for other people in situations like that, separate? And what does that separation look like where there's a clean break and they, you know, there's agreement as to what is yours and, and what is theirs? Right. So I was very careful from the beginning to be very upfront with my plans and my team. I let them know probably like three or four months in advance what our plans were. And it all kind of came about very unexpected. I got um, I got a lead from for a job that was for Lifetime Products, if you know, like the folding tables and chairs. Yeah. Um, Lifetime Products was based here in Utah. Somebody that I knew that worked there said, hey, we might have an opening. And so I just told them straight up, like, hey, this is what I'm looking at. It helps that it was outside of the industry. Um, they, If you are considering a job that's inside the industry, it was pretty much a, that day they would walk you out of the oh, building yeah. with a security guard. Like you didn't take anything with you, but they were very, they were very okay with me, like prepping my portfolio in part of my time, applying to this job. They were really cool. And I, I definitely wanted to keep that relationship solid. And over the last, I think it's been three years since I've been away from Hasbro, um, 
I've done so much work for them. I think I've probably put more games on shelf <laughs> since I've been away from Hasbro than I have since I was at Hasbro. So part of and the exit so, then was then you going to kind of a, a different industry altogether and having yes. like a clean break that way and then coming back into the gaming industry. Right. So I've, okay. I had been away from Hasbro for about two years. Um, I went worked at Lifetime designing tables and chairs. Then I switched over to user experience and user interface design, which is what I do for my full-time job now. Um, which is I design websites and apps for medical supply companies. And it's very different and it's great. It offers me flexibility because I can work from home. And in like my in-between hours, I get to, you know, have fun. Do little monsters that eat people. It's great. So how did you connect with Matt? So Matt is your, is he like, is are you guys kind of co-owners of the company or how's that dynamic? Yes. Going? So we are co-owners okay. uh, where our specialties kind of divide is I do more of the gameplay design and he's a visual director. So he yeah. graduated in a blend of industrial design and animation. So he's a far better artist than I am. Um, he has owned his own business for a while. We actually met at Hasbro, but I'll get back to that. Um, as far as the way it's divided is we both do everything, but when it comes, when push comes to shove, or if we have disagreements, if it's gameplay related, it falls to me. If it's visual development, it falls to him. Got it. Um, the way this actually started was we were both talking about projects that we wanted to do. And we were like, you know what? We should create a, a label that we can both publish like independently of each other under this label. And then that way we're just kind of like building the notoriety of the label like in two separate camps. It really quickly just became we would get together weekly, play games, and we, event, we eventually just, you know, aligned on all of the projects and yeah. became a single entity that works on everything together but um when i we both went to byu that's where we graduated from so when he heard that i was getting hired at uh hasbro he reached out to me and said like hey fellow alumni let me take you to lunch we can talk about the area where you might want to move all that kind of stuff so he kind of took me under his wing and he actually got laid off sometime i mean i was probably there a year after he was okay. but then he got laid off and made his way back here to Utah. And then eventually I made my way back here to Utah and that we were just, we became friends and then we're like, you know what, let's get back to games. That's awesome. And then how did this game come about The Where did the idea for uh snack time other than someone's nightmare? Where, <laughs> right. Where did this come from? How did you guys come up with this idea? Um, if you were to ask anybody at Hasbro, my sense of humor is dark. Um, dark, it's like a blend of dark and cute. Um, you te I tend to go a little bit off color with my humor, but hopefully not in a way that's like really off-putting to people. The way Snack Time actually came about was I saw our illustrator, Bodie Hartley, amazing guy, follow him um on instagram it's slow quest i think is his instagram handle amazing guy i saw his artwork on instagram and i was like i feel like this just belongs in a board game so i reached out to him oh, cool. asked him if he would be interested so this game was actually built around his art um which was a fun blend of just like he captures the gristly really well while still having like a kind of cute edge to it and that's kind of the tone that we wanted to go with the game and I started, I had toyed around with like a connecting sewer pipes, uh, roll and write for a while, but it had never yeah. like landed. And I guess you could call his art was kind of just the cornerstone that just made everything snap into place as like, yes, this is what so it is. So was his art, like, was he drawing uh, like monsters and stuff on his Instagram? Like, was that the, the monster artwork already kind of existed? And then you're like, ooh, that could be a kind of a cool overlay to this roll and write or? 
No, we actually, he doesn't draw monsters that often. He'll draw like ogres and stuff like that, but he mostly does uh, characters. Um, he does a lot of Dungeons and Dragons illustrations, like 5e compatible, like heroes and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Um, but I actually didn't want to ever picture the monsters when we first started into this. I was like, I want them to be like that un unpictured mm. something, like that dark spot in the corner of your mind or that blind spot where you don't know what they actually look like. Um, we ended up illustrating them mostly for Kickstarter purposes because we're like, okay, we can't really have a video for this on Kickstarter and not show the monsters. Yes. I, um, now that you mentioned this, you're right. It's the people that are, yeah. that are in the cards, right? Yeah. So you really don't see the monsters. You draw like body parts of the monsters on your, on your score sheet. But really we wanted the monsters to be kind of this idea that they were just kind of like these blobs of traits, just kind of these mutations that like growth pattern or anything because yep. in the game i don't know how many of you are familiar but you grow in your four different corners of the sewers your four different monsters and some could be completely made of teeth one is completely made of tentacles some is just eyes and teeth and no tentacles and anyway so for that reason it didn't really make sense to draw the monsters fully until kickstarter happened got it that's cool so walk us through, how do you play this game? So I'm going to share the screen here um, yeah. and, uh, and maybe you can kind of walk us through. Let me see if I can find a good kind of Absolutely. Uh, visual. I like this one with the people, how they're kind of moving down the sidewalk. So I'm going yeah. to show that. Um, yeah. Walk us through, how do you play this game? So it's a roll and write. So what is a roll yeah. and write? So for those of you that don't know, a roll and write, um, whenever I ask people, do you know what a roll and write is? They usually say no. And then I'm like, have you played Yahtzee? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay, that's a roll and write. Like Yahtzee was probably the first roll and write. Yeah. It's kind of as a category, it's kind of been a huge resurgence just lately. It's kind of exploded. And I I fell in love with Welcome To and Ganshan Clever, or That's Pretty Clever if you're going by the lame English name. <laughs> um. And I, I had really had fun with those. And I was like, you know what? There's so much in this category that just hasn't been explored. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to go for it. So a roll and write um, or a flip and write game is basically you're given some kind of something that you have to record on your score sheet. Um, there are, they scale drastically in complexity. Like Hadrian's wall is very in-depth and complicated. Yahtzee and I would say snack time falls toward the less complicated side of things. Um, but basically um, each round you'll roll dice and everybody uses the same results to add onto their sheet. You're adding pipes to connect your little, uh, the chambers that your monsters are growing in to different sewer entrances. And you're also building your monsters at the same time. So hopefully by the time your monster reaches a sewer entrance, that's where they can kind of reach up and snack on a pedestrian. Um, and meanwhile, pedestrians kind of walk past all of these openings to the sewer and you're just trying to line them up so that you can pick off the weak ones with your weak monsters. And then once your monsters are fully grown, you can tackle the bigger ones that are worth more points. It's all just kind of a timing game and just trying to stay away from animal control, the traps that they'll set and stuff like that. I thought it's kind of interesting where, uh, when I was watching the playthrough and I think I have, here's kind of a a visual here for people watching um is you know the, when you when you deal that card but then the next round it, sh it keeps shifting forward like they are actually walking down the sidewalk which i think is kind of cool um and does that kind of change up the um your ability to grab them like so if you don't grab them and they move past the manhole that you had connected your pipes to then you need to have the requirements to get the next pedestrian is that how that kind of okay. goes 
Yeah. So you've effectively missed your chance if you're one late, which creates these really interesting timing issues where mm. you can see there are actually some pedestrians that are rather undesirable to eat. There's a demolitions <laughs> expert that's carrying boxes of dynamites that can injure your monsters. So there's a weird timing aspect where it's like, okay, I want to wait till they're past this one or link up at this time with this monster, because then I know that I can snack on this really valuable person coming down the street. And back to the dark humor, like, Yes, these human beings are scaled by their value or their quality as a human being. You have uh, drunks and bums at like the one end that are not very appetizing. Mm. And then you have like scientists and engineers and scholars and like, and it's kind of scaled like that. Yes, I'm a horrible uh, person and I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> now with, uh, in this game, I noticed like in one of the videos you have uh, like a dry erase uh, board mm -hmm. um, for your roll and write, which I've seen a lot of roll and writes do that. They have the dry erase. Uh, and then, but when I see the components, you have now pads of paper with, um, you know, with that. So what was the decision to kind of switch from one to the other? Yeah. So we've gotten, when it first started, we were definitely going down the, the realm of dry erase, uh, railroading is another one of my favorite ones that has a great, it's all dry erase marker based. And that's just what we kind of assumed would be done. The more we had to play test this because it was developed during the pandemic, the more we had to play test it with people remotely and stuff, we realized that honestly, we could just play this with an unlimited number of players. I'll, as long as everybody can see the cards that are flipping and the dice that are rolled, you, there's no limit to how many people can play. And we're also like uh, this weekend and probably a couple future weekends, we're gonna do live playthroughs if anybody's interested. Oh, cool. Um, at the end, you'll have my contact information. But um, basically, we decided if we were going to provide dry erase sheets, we were probably limiting the number of players that could play at one time from like four to six. And I am not one for party games. So any game that can play like eight to 10 um, and still be fun that doesn't take forever to go around the table or things sure. like that. I was like, we can do that, then I want to. So we decided to move to a pad of paper with dry erase sheets as an optional add-on. Because um, I also know a lot of people will just laminate a couple of the sheets in the yeah. interest of not destroying our planet and being more energy uh conservation minded and stuff um a lot of people just choose to laminate theirs anyway so they never have to um reorder papers or anything like that yeah. so we figured pads would give the best flexibility for groups remote play testing stuff like that and those who want the dry erase ones those will be an add-on oh that's cool yeah it makes a lot of sense too so you kind of get both right you could you could use yeah. these laminate them and use them or you can use the paper myself i know with rolling rights i usually avoid them uh, mm -hmm. specifically because I'm a bit OCD that way. I don't like getting the dry erase marker stuff all over my hands, right? Because I always find as I'm writing that I end up smearing the, you know, the, mm -hmm. the marker that I've already put on the page and it's on the back of my hand and so forth. So I would actually gravitate more towards a sheet that I can use a pen or, or a pencil, right? And and do it that way. So I think that's uh, that's pretty cool. Um, and then, so when, when you guys create this game, one thing I did notice is that it's, it's a 60 day campaign. What was the rationale for that? Um, a lot of weird things went into that decision. And honestly, at the end of the day, um, that's probably one thing, the one thing about the campaign that I do regret. I probably, if I could do it again, I would shorten it. Um, we had gone back and forth between 30 and between 30 and 60 days and 
I had read an article about like, it doesn't hurt anything to have a longer campaign. Um, nothing's holding up our production. So mm. we'll, we have the money that we can start manufacturing this and then pay ourselves back from the Kickstarter funds after the fact. So we were like, you know what? It's really just kind of leaving it open for pre-orders longer. Um, some things that I didn't anticipate is just kind of like the mental pressure on us to run a campaign for 60 days. Yeah. Um, paying attention to comments and questions. And I know those don't just go away after the Kickstarter ends either, but I think we had adjusted it, set it at 60. And then honestly, we didn't revisit it again. And then we launched the campaign and then we're like, wow, after the first like three days, we're like 60 days is a long time. <laughs> so yeah. honestly, long story short, um, it was more of like, we had debated, we had read some things, we had done a lot of research and then we were kind of came down to like, uh, either is probably fine. And then we just didn't update it. We had just had it set at 60 and 60 didn't seem that much longer than 30. And so we just went for it. And I think in the future, we will definitely do shorter yeah. campaigns. <laughs> you're funded, right? So you're right. The, right. Every pledge coming in is incremental. And um, if you're able to put your own funds into it, you can probably turn around production much faster than you know mm -hmm. normally too. So people don't have to wait as long. So uh, right. I think that's cool. And then the cost, uh, $25 I know, which is fairly aggressive mm -hmm. as a price point uh, nowadays uh, where mm -hmm. you see a trend towards uh, campaigns trying to average their um, their pledge value up to cover off things like acquisition costs and so forth. What was the rationale behind going uh, at a lower price? So we knew there were a lot of things. We originally had it set at 35. Um, and a couple things were just the amount of value that we were trying to put into the game. Um, we we were looking at the absolute lowest we could do because we know that Kickstarter right now is a nightmare for shipping costs. Yeah. It's it's hard. You order some games and most are doing the trend of we're going to charge shipping after so that we can get accurate and the lowest shipping cost so we don't have to pad it at all for our benefit. Yeah. And so we went with that and we also said, you know what, we can sub subsidize half of the shipping for people because it's our it's one of our first it well it is our company's first game not our first game running um sure. between the two of us but we're like it's our first game let's go ahead and just go low and kind of just like build a base we're hoping that we're not looking to make a ton of money on this game honestly sure. if we can establish relationships if we can uh, get some credibility with our backers and get kind of that groundwork laid, then we will have considered it a huge success. And already like we're blown away with how many people have supported it. Yeah, and so, yeah, we're very happy with how it's gone. And honestly, for a company like starting out we're we couldn't be happier. So um, $25 was a mixture of just trying to really offer a great experience that we felt like offered a lot at a lower price point and then also offer that kind of buffer for we know people will have to pay for shipping and so yeah. just a lot of trying to throw the industry a bone at this point with shipping prices just being so absurd yeah they're crazy and um what kind of marketing have you done for this campaign so for someone like yourselves looking to kind of put their toe in the water right and, and kind of get started what are some of the things you guys did to kind of kick off um your campaign 
Um, so we actually didn't do a ton. Um, we had read a lot of things about uh, Jellup and backer kits, like a marketing branch and all of those kind of things that we had read a bunch. We'd read about Instagram marketing, Facebook marketing, all of the information out there is kind of like, eh, it's kind of inconclusive how valuable it is. Yeah. And so a couple self plugs here. Um, I have on Instagram, my personality is the board game critic. I don't know if any of you have come across my stuff, um, but I've done reviews. I mean, for the last like two years, I've just done board game reviews um, and that helped immensely. Um, the board game community just on Instagram. I hate Twitter. Just don't get me started about Twitter. <laughs> um, I love Instagram's board game community specifically have been so welcoming and so supportive and that's honestly probably been the most beneficial part. And I think Jamie Stegmaier writes a lot about this on his website is just like every day, just build the people that are invested in you as a person and not just looking for, I mean, additional publicity or like just build positive interactions with people yeah. on any platform that you're on. And it just comes back to you. And I think that's been the biggest thing is I have, um, I think something around 3000 followers on Instagram. And wow. most of them, I feel like I have a really good relationship with that. We chat back and forth on a regular basis and I'm going to PAX Unplugged. And honestly, past the three days of playing board games, I'm just excited to meet some of these people that yeah. I've gotten close to on Instagram. Um, so overall, we have not done hardly any pre-campaign marketing. We've gone to a couple conventions with the game and like kind of showed it around and played with people and stuff like that. But really it's been pretty minimal. Um, as And part of all of this has been laying that groundwork. And I think going into the next one, we'll have a better idea of what actually works and what we're excited to put actual marketing dollars. To. And I think for clarity for our listeners, um, I consider that marketing, right? Uh, you've built a yeah. community, right? A fairly large community. 3,000 Instagram followers is not a small number. Uh, yeah. Going to conventions, interacting with people one-on-one, -on -one, demonstrating the game. These are all things that help build the pre-buzz to a launch. And then your social media amplification with your, you know, Facebook ads and so forth that comes after or during your camp, you know, comes when you're ready. And then during your, your, your yeah. campaign, but a lot of the initial interest is kind of laying that groundwork, as you said. So I, I don't want you to discredit the amount of work that was involved with that. As <laughs> it well. is probably even, it is probably even harder, like the going to conventions and interacting with yeah. people face to face, instead of just throwing some money at it is, arguably a lot harder well i think it's it's a grind right and i don't think people yeah. necessarily realize how much work is involved in building um a community around these things yeah. right and, and and it comes from being genuine as well it's not as you said just plugging your stuff like it's actually yeah. you know interacting with people caring about people caring about what they're working on and then uh you know building a relationship from there what is yeah. kind of on the horizon for you guys so after this comes out this is the first game what's kind of the plan like where do you guys go from here uh, from here, we are, we've said as our partnership, um, we're like, once this ceases to be fun, we won't do it anymore. Mm. So we're looking to keep it. We've talked about like, yeah, we could probably pull out like three to four games a year, looking at shooting for quarterly. We have three games that are in various stages, uh, various stages of development. Um, one that is definitely a deeper, probably 40, like $40 experience, mm. um, that is chapter one of what we hope will be like five different games hmm. culminating in like a campaign, like a legacy version. And we have that big thing that we're always kind of 
mulling over. And if you want to see development, we're very open with our development timeline. And just like we were play testing it last night, um, go ahead and find us on Instagram. Um, if you want to see kind of uh, real time play of that. And this under, and sorry, we, just to be clear. So this yeah. is under the board game critic. Is that the, where they find? No, this is backfire games. Under backfire games on Instagram. I kind of post across the both of them. A lot of times <laughs> I'll just post the same thing to both. Yeah. <laughs> and I try not to spam my board game critic stuff because that's more like board game discovery based um, rather than board game development. And then backfire, we do a lot of like the artwork development, advice on play testing, stuff like that on backfire games. Oh, nice. Um, but yeah, so we have we have a really small like card game that we're excited about that honestly we may just go direct to market. Um yeah. it doesn't make sense to do a small card game on Instagram very much because just the development costs and everything are yeah. low enough anyway to produce that it's like eh, if we have a couple thousand left over, we can do a small print run and try and market it ourselves. Yeah. Um so on the horizon. Um, the plunder games is the big one that's currently in development. And then one that's codenamed voodoo market, <laughs> um, is also on the horizons. Like I said, we have a dark sense of humor and, um, voodoo may or may not be enough of a turnoff that we changed the name, but that's his code name for now. And yeah, we have, yeah. And there's, I always have a pile of prototypes, honestly, <laughs> but yeah, we're, we're going to keep producing stuff. Who knows the timeline? We're we're really mostly wanting to have fun. Yeah, for people that want to uh, check out Snack Time, I have put in the show notes uh, a link to the Kickstarter campaign. Uh, of course, you can always just go to Kickstarter and type in the search box "Snack Time" and you will find the campaign. If you love roll and write or you want to check out a roll and write, it's definitely worth uh, taking a look. And if it's something for you, then maybe throw these guys uh, some love. Uh, McKay, just want to thank you again for coming on this podcast. I want to wish you all the best with this upcoming campaign and your other games to come. Thank you so much. You take care. Cheers. Okay. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.